This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Michael Rendell, Goldman Sachs's very own Global Medical Director, about how a firm like ours responds to the coronavirus pandemic and what we all can be doing on the individual level, including tips for staying in good shape mentally, physically, as more of us start working from home. Dr. Rendell, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Dr. Rendell, um, before we get to your role specifically at Goldman and how you prepare the firm for a health crisis like this, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the most common questions we're getting from our clients and others about the course of the pandemic and the specific challenges, unique challenges it raises for healthcare professionals and, and everyone really who's dealing with its consequences. So how would you describe the state of of testing, um, you know, it's different region by region, but um, maybe start with the U.S. Why has it been so hard to get people tested, and why have the protocols varied so widely, region to region? All right, so let's start with the U.S. Unfortunately, in the U.S., the testing kits that the CDC were um, developing and manufacturing ended up being faulty, and so they had to sort of scrap all these kits that they had and then start all over again. And so, because of that, we got behind in having enough testing kits that we anticipated we would need if when the coronavirus reached the U.S. We've been ramping that up, and and I think key to also that is being allowing commercial labs like Quest and LabCorp, for instance, to start creating these test kits and being able to perform the test because, you know, we're used to using commercial labs, and they have a huge capability of doing many, many, many tests at the same time, and they have good quality control. So that's going to be really to our advantage. So what we're going to see over the next few weeks is much greater access to testing. Part of the issue, ironically, is it won't so much be the lab being able to run the test, but figuring out the right way for, for doctors and other healthcare providers to, to obtain the swab so you can submit the test. We don't want lots of sick people with COVID-19 coming into emergency rooms or doctor's offices where they're going to spread the infection to other people, particularly other people who might have healthcare condition, health conditions that will uh, make it more dangerous for them to get infected. So hospital systems and practices are figuring out now what is a safe way for people to get tested in special areas. They've done it in parking lots. And once that gets ramped up and there's more access to testing, we're going to have a better idea about what this disease is. Right now, because there's so few kits, we are testing people mostly who have more serious disease, whether they're in the hospital or more serious disease at home. By being able to open up that testing, we'll have a better idea about milder disease and how how um, prevalent that is compared to more serious disease and really get a better sense of how transmissible this is and, and also about how serious and and even the mortality rates will be easier to um, understand what they truly are by doing more widespread testing. So right. that's in the U.S. The same is really holding true for a lot of these other countries that are also don't have enough testing kits. and Some of them have very strict criteria for testing. So that's giving it's, it's hampering our ability globally to really understand the spectrum of disease that we're seeing. In another another area that people are focused on rightly is is therapeutics and and what's the likely course of of therapeutics for for COVID nineteen? Well, there's a there's a drug right now that's undergoing clinical trials both in the U.S. and outside the U.S. called remdesivir. This was an antiviral that was developed, I think, a few years ago in the hopes of treating Ebola. It didn't work for Ebola, but it looks promising on an anecdotal level in a couple of case reports. 
that it is effective against this coronavirus strain, SARS-CoV-2, as they call it. So there are a lot of clinical trials ongoing for that. I think that's probably our best hope for a treatment. There have been some other treatments that they've tried, combinations of Tamiflu, which which is an influenza treatment and an HIV treatment. Those are really anecdotal reports, and I'm not really sure whether or not those those are moving forward on a more widespread basis. And of course, vaccines, obviously the the vaccine will will be late uh, for the outbreak, but um, but what's the prospect of having a vaccine in place that would take care of this in future years? Well, most experts are saying a vaccine will take a year to 18 months to develop. And the reason for that is, you know, vaccine trials in order for, they need to be safe and effective. So phase one is understanding what a safe dose and whether the, the, the dose that they've developed is safe and in people. The second is, what is the effective dose? They have to figure out exactly the efficacy. And then the third is a large-scale clinical trial with lots of people to see exactly how people mount an antibody and whether or not they think that's going to be effective. That just takes time, and you have to get enough volunteers. And so, uh, really, I think it's only reasonable expected to be 12 to 18 months before we get a vaccine. All right. And finally, um, we've seen, obviously, in Italy, some just the, the healthcare system getting overloaded. You talked earlier about why social distancing is so important for the healthcare system as a whole. But, but how about the state of, of the healthcare system, I guess, here in the U.S., you know, in terms of hospital beds, the machinery that's needed to treat this, and also just the ability of healthcare professionals to function in this environment? Yeah, I mean, no healthcare system is going to have enough beds to treat as many people as, as might be predicted in any any large pandemic, this one or any other one. Ultimately, if there are enough sick people, the healthcare system will get overwhelmed. It's not built for a pandemic. And so we really need to be careful about our resources. You know, part of the mortality of a pandemic isn't just people who die of the infection, but also people who don't get access to care for other reasons because the healthcare system is overwhelmed. So I think the things that we need to to do are both, A, protecting our high-risk patients, so we're going to have a more difficult time and a more serious disease, make sure they don't get infected so that they don't need the kind of intensive treatment in a, in a um, hospital or a healthcare setting that uh, will take away from other people being treated at the same time. And then the second is making sure that, again, we have the right staff in place, that people are using the right you know, protective equipment. It's important that people use gowns and masks. There is very standard uh, criteria for respiratory droplet infection, airborne dro- infection. And so our hospital systems are ready for that on a routine basis, but they're, they're preparing now and gearing up for an overwhelming number of cases. And so we just have to do our best to be patient and make sure that we're not overwhelming our healthcare system with other things that don't, that we can put off in the short term to make sure that they can focus on the needs of people who are seriously ill. So obviously this is a moment that no one wants to experience, but that you and, and your team have been preparing for for a long time. So how does a global firm prepare for a crisis like this? Well, every firm has a business continuity team where they spend time preparing, planning, testing, and peace, what, we would, what, what we would call peacetime. And during peacetime, we're looking at not just you know our capabilities from a technology standpoint and from a people standpoint. But our job on the medical side is from a medical standpoint, how are we prepared? So we look at things like, do we want to 
stockpile medications. For the most part, we don't really do that. Nobody really does that because we don't want to be in the business of providing direct care to our employees. But we look at other things like what kinds of other strategies we would put into place to help mitigate any kind of outbreak should it occur. We want to understand our healthcare providers who are on site at some of our locations. How are they going to deal with uh, something that would, would happen, whether it be a respiratory infection or a different kind of infection? Ebola, for example, is a contact infection. It's not from respiratory. Making sure they're, they're well protected. They would know how to deal with this kind of event in the workplace. How are we going to provide the right treatment and the right information to people? That's sort of what we do on the medical side as part of the larger business continuity team when they plan for an event such as this. Increasingly, our firm, like like many others, is encouraging many employees to work remotely. In fact, uh, today here, there are probably more people working from home by a long shot than, than are in the building. So what's the general strategy behind limiting people in the building? So with the coronavirus infection, the key to suppressing this infection is really around social distancing. And so if we, they've been finding in China and other places that social distancing has really made a huge difference. So that by limiting contact between people, we limit the number of infections that can happen. And that can really make a big difference in the long run. So if we look at the sort of arc of a pandemic or arc of an outbreak, you know, when the, when the infections get to be a very, very high number, not only is it bad because lots of people get infected, we end up with people with high-risk conditions who do poorly get infected, and then the healthcare system gets overrun. And so the, the key is to push down that arc and make it much lower so that there are fewer infections during the course of an outbreak so that healthcare can be delivered effectively and that we protect particularly people who are high risk. And in coronavirus, it's people over 60, people with chronic medical problems, pregnant women, people who are immunosuppressed. We want to make sure that those people are protected um, specifically because they could have a more adverse outcome compared to, say, young people. That's different in different viruses. Sometimes young people are more infected or children are more infected. That is not the case in, in with, with COVID-19. Obviously, I should say for our listeners that I'm in one room and you're in another. So uh, you're at home and I'm here in a room by myself. So we're, we're doing some social distancing. Other than limiting the number of people that are actually together in a building, what, what other preventative measures uh, is a firm like ours taking? Well, I think one thing that's really important is the messaging we give people. And sometimes we have to give it over and over again because we want it to really be impactful. And the most important thing is to isolating yourself when you're sick. We, we really want to emphasize strongly that in order to help not pass it from person to person, if you're sick, you need to stay home, you need to self-isolate. So that, you know, during your period when you're infectious, you're not really passing an infection to others. That also means monitoring your health. Be really mindful of, of your own symptoms. With COVID-19, the most common symptoms are fever, cough, and shortness of breath. If you're developing those symptoms, you want to make sure you're careful to um, speak to your doctor and stay away from other people who are ill. And, and if you're ill, stay away from others so that you don't pass any infection along. The other things we talk about, they seem a little bit simple, but it, sometimes it's hard for people to do it. Washing your hands frequently, don't touch your hands to your face, you know, um, making sure you stay at least three feet from each other, um, up between three and six feet, because respiratory droplets travel around six feet. And, that, and so we stagger our workstations, even when people who are coming into the office, we make sure that they're more separated than, when, than we normally would. Hand sanitizer, which is hard to get these days. 
using hand sanitizer when you don't have access to washing your hands with soap and water. Those are the kinds of things that we, we are doing, even for people who are coming in, whether they're in, in the, inside the building or outside the building, it's important for them to think about those things. Dr. Rendell, one question that we've got quite often in our offices, as we've had some confirmed cases of COVID-19, is how should we feel about the safety of our workspace? We, we use this phrase and see this phrase, deep cleaning all the time. What's effective in that, in that space, ensuring that it's safe for other people to come to work after we've identified a case? So uh, we know that coronaviruses, such as the one that's um, called the cause of COVID-19, survival on surfaces for a period of time. And the most recent data suggests in the WHO, the World Health Organization, will say that we think that this coronavirus lasts anywhere from a few hours to several days. So that we know. We don't know exactly how much that contributes to transmission of, of the virus and the infections to other people. But we want to be cautious, and every public health organization advocates cleaning. So what are the things that we've done? They, they understand better what kills this coronavirus, and so there are certain uh, standard cleaning agents that don't work. So we've switched over to what the recommendations are around cleaning, and that mostly is ethyl alcohol products or bleach-containing products, which we know are effective at killing the virus. And so under normal circumstances, we've enhanced our cleaning in terms of using these products, um, being more vigorous about cleaning more surfaces, uh, performing the cleaning more times a day, and really paying attention to what we call common touch points, meaning you know elevator buttons, door handles, pantry areas, so that where people are frequently touching, we're making sure we're trying to clean as best as we can. Um, if there is a case, and you'll see this everywhere, it's not just a Goldman Sachs, if there is a case of an infection in the workplace, we know that perhaps in that area where the person was and maybe sort of on the floor where they might have been, there could be some virus that, that remains behind. And so that's what we call a deep cleaning, where they really spend an extra amount of time really cleaning all the surfaces, either in that workspace, in that area, on that floor. And we do that, you know, on the evening after we identify a case to make sure we're, that we're really trying to eliminate the virus on surfaces as much as we can. We all have responsibilities here as managers. You manage our health centers around the world. How can managers be helpful in creating a more comfortable and flexible environment uh, as, as, we, as we work through this? Well, listen, we're all in this together. And so the important thing is that we really support each other. And I think as a manager, we always want to be listening to our employees' concerns. But I think especially at this time, we want to be extra patient. We want to be checking in with our people. We want to understand if they have, you know, anxieties. We want to understand if they're having trouble being productive or getting through their work, how we can make things easier for them. I think that's a very important because I think that, you know, keeps us as a, as a team very productive. And so I think that also making sure as a manager that these precautions we're talking about, that people are washing their hands, using hand sanitizer, you know, reinforcing some of these these messages are really important. And then, of course, you know, the use of, you know, technology and doing you know, phone or virtual meetings. It would be great, it's great to use virtual meetings if they're available because you can have some face-to-face -face contact and some social contact, even if you can't be in the room at the same time. So obviously for a lot of employees, the, the, the vast, vast majority of our employees are healthy today, but, but it's still trying times uh, emotionally and psychologically. What resources does a firm like Goldman or, or more broadly offer for, for employees in that state? Yeah, I mean, I think most firms have what we call an EAP, 
program, which is called Employee Assistance Program, that offers short-term counseling. And we do it at Goldman Sachs on-site and person-to-person. We also do it off-site person-to-person. And finally, we do it telephonically. And so using, uh, again, a virtual appointment with a counselor, whether it be uh, telephonically, um, in, in our case, sometimes some of their firms use video visits, is really important to be able to just speak to someone, express your anxiety, express your concern, get some short-term support. I think that, that EAP is really important to make sure people are aware of that so they can get the support they need. We also have an online portal called Meekrilibrium, which is a resilience uh, program that we that we offer. People can go online, they can do an assessment, they can understand what their specific stressors are, and then they have online programs to help manage through that. There's a meditation, I think, uh, part of, of Mequilibrium. People can actually just download meditation apps on their phone. I think meditation is a wonderful thing for us to be doing. You know, a lot of us we can't go to the gym anymore. There are a lot of our physical activities that have been limited uh, during this period because of um, the government-related um, social distancing, closing a lot of social activities. Putting an app on your phone to, to meditate and spending some time meditate, I think, really would help get you centered. And those are the kinds of things I think are important. We, we've tried in Asia to do a few things and programs. We have some written materials on our COVID website. Sometimes we've done some meditation classes um, virtually. I mean, those are the kinds of things I think that keep us centered and focused and calm. I think it's com- keeping calm is really important in, the, in this environment. So, so Dr. Rendell, you mentioned our, our locations in Asia. They've been living with it for a lot longer uh, than, than we have here in the U.S. Or, or in Western Europe. Talk a little bit about the status of our operations in Hong Kong, which has been uh, really in the middle of COVID-19 for, for two months. Yeah, I've been so impressed talking to the Asia teams about how things are going there because what we're just starting to experience now in the U.S., they've been living with for six weeks. And I think what I'm finding from speaking to them is after they get, they're going through all these different phases that I expect that we will go through in the beginning, trying just to adapt to the new environment that we're in, which is this, you know, social distance environment, this work from home environment. It's so so opposite to what we're used to because we're by nature social animals. Getting used to that, dealing with school closures, which we're seeing now happening in the U.S. How do I manage my children at home? How do I work and my children are home at the same time? I'm seeing all these things that they've been able to work through really in an amazing way. The people in, in, in Hong Kong and more broadly in Asia have been exceptional when I when I speak to them and I hear what they're what they're doing. What's really interesting is I think you, you sort of go through these phases where the first phase is sort of this batten down the hatches and get ready and and for what's to come. And then you sort of get used to it's your new reality. You realize that living, you know, working from home and living at home, which is not what you're used to doing, is some is, is full time, twenty four seven. And so now, as the epidemic sort of lightens up in Asia, interestingly, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, and even China have many fewer cases than we see in Europe and in the U.S. They're sort of ready and to and anxious, I think, to, to go back to work to some degree. And so. We see more people wanting to come back into the office, more people getting used to the idea of how do you live in this environment where you're maybe you're not using public transportation or you're being mindful of your individual social distance, but they're really just sort of really anxious to sort of regain coming back into the experience of being in the office. And so I think we'll go through all that just like they did, and I'm sure we'll do it just as successfully, but it's been very interesting psychologically to see how that's evolved. 
over there. Well, you bring up an interesting point. You and I spent a lot of time trying to develop a global message for this firm, but honestly, it's very hard to have a uniform approach when the regions have very different experiences. So talk a little bit about the trade-offs between trying to have a consistent approach for all of our firms and uh, one that acknowledges some of the big regional differences right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really interesting that that uh, all the different methods that government is putting in place, and we have to react to that in every region that we're in. And so travel restrictions, temperature screening, isolation policies, they really vary from place to place. And while, for instance, wearing masks may be commonplace in, in Asia, particularly in China and Hong Kong, they're very rarely used in the U.S. and really sort of discouraged as, as a method of, of mitigating spread of the virus. In, in, in Western Europe and the U.S., they tend to emphasize social distancing as the best thing to do. And so you don't, you don't see something like that culturally. From, that's, a, that's sort of a difference we see between Asia and Europe and the U.S. On the other hand, child care is something that we are mindful of globally that everybody has to deal with. Um, and, and how, because many, many, many places, schools are being closed. The work from home environment is sort of the same. Again, it's that, you know, sort of major reducing the ability for people to interact with each other. And so in general, although we apply the same principles everywhere, we really want to be mindful of, you know, both cultural differences, government differences, all those things play a role in how we sort of manage from place to place. And even though we're one united firm. So you mentioned a couple of times the, the challenges of working from home and, and I myself being brand new to it have, have plenty of challenges. I, I think I need to teach my children to meditate. But um, working from home is isolating. Um, it's not something people are generally familiar with. Some advice for those on how to remain calm and productive uh, when they're working from home? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. One set up your workstation. This will be your workstation for the next six weeks or so, or maybe longer, or maybe less. It's hard to say. Make sure you have a comfortable workstation. You know, we, we, you, you won't have an ergotomist and a special chair and a special monitor and, and, and all the things that luckily we're able to support you and bring to you at Goldman Sachs, but you have to do the best you can with your laptop instead of the desktop. You, you know, find the right chair for you. Make sure you have a, a comfortable environment that the lighting is right. Because that makes a huge difference. We all know that. That makes a huge difference in how productive we are. Two, think about what you're going to do for um, your taking breaks, making sure you're, you you have time that's quiet for you, time you can spend with your kids so you can don't get anxious you're uh, not spending enough time with them or paying enough attention to their needs. Figure out a way to get some exercise. I think that's really, really important. You know, uh, where where I live now, we have some trails near my house. I can't go to the gym anymore. I can't ride my bike because it's winter, but I'm going to start doing a lot of walking. I think that's a really important thing for us to do. And then, again, I think make sure you're communicating with others. We, we're, we're social animals by nature, as I've said before, and make sure you're keeping in touch with your friends, with your colleagues, and making sure that it's built into your day that you're having enough social interaction. Well, we just need a break from all those conference calls that you and I are on. Um, Michael, <laughs> there's obviously a lot of information out there today and a lot of misinformation and faux experts on this topic. How do you yourself make sure that you're getting the best information that's available and stay up to date on the relevant developments? Well, first of all, I go to websites, both global and government-based, 
that help give me great information. For instance, the World Health Organization, Centers for Disease Control in the U.S., the National Health Service in, in the U.K., all those have great websites with a great deal of information. It's very useful. They're updated on a regular basis, so we understand what their guidance is. There's a lot of useful medical information there. We also have some experts, both infectious disease experts and global travel experts, that give us information on, on a daily basis and make themselves available to us for questions. So as, the, as this pandemic, which is rapidly evolving and changing, we can keep current with what's going on. Well, Dr. Mandel, thanks for joining us today and sharing your wisdom with us. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. We'll be back later this week with a markets update from Tony Pasquarella from our Global Markets Division. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a radio comment. Thanks for listening and be safe out there. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.